Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Nowlin. Okay, question for the day. Have you ever considered that God may actually intend for us to take on the hardest jobs in the darkest environments, perhaps instead of the best jobs in the brightest environments? Is there anything wrong with the best jobs, good places? We all love that. Uh, I would say no, there's nothing wrong with that. But God gets tremendous representation when we put ourselves in a position where he can demonstrate his power through us, where he can bring beauty out of ashes in a broken place or a broken circumstance. I would suggest that this is mission in the marketplace. So as we all know, We're living in really unsteady and uncertain times. A lot of things are unknown. A lot of things are stressing people out. But one thing that is certain is that God is always many steps ahead of the enemy, and he's always able to turn any disaster into victory for the kingdom. Proverbs 21.30 says, There's no wisdom, no insight, and no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Where the kingdom of this world comes up with a plan, something that's contrived against the Lord, against his kingdom, God outmaneuvers the enemy and laughs at their efforts. You see this in uh, God's response to the schemes of those in power and leaders and forces that are opposed to him. It's a great account that's captured in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. The scripture says, Why? Are the nations restless, the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their shackles apart. Let's throw their ropes away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. In the middle of dark moments, you know, there's always a kingdom opportunity. For those in the body of Christ who have their spiritual eyesight activated, there's always an opportunity to subdue chaos and host the peace of heaven, the restorative power of God, the very thing that all creation is longing for. As we obey the original commission to work, cultivate, keep, subdue, we find that there are unique seasons of opportunity that come into view. God is always working, and he wants us to see what his eyes are seeing, what his eyes are on, and lay hold of the things that his hands are on. This, again, is an illustration of co-laboring. When I give my definition of a metron, you know, in common language sense, I write it as follows. A measure of responsibility delegated by God to you in the midst of creation, culture, and spiritual history. In the midst of these elements 
of your Metron, there often arises seasons of opportunity, or times, you could say, of opportunity, where God sets before us critical moments when the kingdom of God can be advanced, and he is asking you to lay hold of it along with him. If you feel a compulsion from the Lord to act, you know, whether in a life decision, big or small, job, education, family, concept, whatever it is, I would encourage you to respond to that compulsion from God, to do it, to take responsibility and act, even when it doesn't make total sense in the natural. These are the times that matter, that matter to us, to God, to others, matter to creation. You can refer to these seasons of choice, these seasons that matter, these seasons of opportunity as Cairo seasons. I've been wanting to share with you all about this concept of Kairos. Let's look at where this word comes from and how it's used in scripture. It's an ancient Greek word, and it means the right, critical, or opportune moment. It's one of two words that the ancient Greeks had for time, for the word time. The other word being chronos, and that refers to like chrono- chronological or sequential time. And then there's kairos, and kairos signifies a proper or opportune time for action. In this sense, while chronos is quantitative, kairos is qualitative. And the plural use of kairos means the times. You know, I came across a blog post uh, produced by the High Calling, featured on the Theology of Work website. It discusses Kairos time, and one thing it says uh, about Kairos in the Bible, it says Kairos speaks more to specific God-ordained times throughout history, sometimes called the right time or an appointed season. You can see an example of this in Titus 1 verse 3, where it says, And which now at this appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Uh, This appointed season is the word kairos, a kairos season. Actually, kairos is used a lot in scripture. It's used 86 times in the New Testament. Actually, almost twice as many times uh, in the New Testament, the word kairos appears as the word chronos. But another use of kairos as an example is found in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2 through 3. Everybody probably is familiar with this excerpt of scripture, but just for illustration, there's an appointed time for everything, it says. And that's the word kairos. It goes on to talk about there's a time for every matter under heaven. The word time in this uh, translation, if you look at the first Greek translation of the Bible, it uses the word time and it's translated not as chronos but it's it's rendered out or translated as kairos actually deeply it conveys a sense of ripeness in that context uh, the word kairos so a simple summary would be that kairos refers to a moment in time when we can change things and no matter what phase of life you're in or what your vocation involves really no matter who you are god wants to work with you to shape the future, to action on things. And that shaping comes through your ability to see the Kairos moments that God is orchestrating and then lay hold of those things 
that he is wanting to partner with you to do. Kairos, it's always full of risk. It's always full of unknown. It's difficult to quantify if you can, but it's always worth it. And this is where God moves mountains. This is where really amazing stuff happens. This is the place where testimonies are born. And God doesn't want us to be risk averse. He intends that we would jump at the opportunity to partner with him to pull off what would be impossible in the eyes of the world. And God never asks us to be reckless, but he always asks us to take risks. Because once we risk in obedience to God, we find the secret to success, and that secret is reliance. He wants us to move from fearing risk to embracing reliance. But it starts with taking a risk and trusting God and letting him prove himself out. And then you begin to be comfortable and trusting and rely on the Lord. And then that reliance becomes a lifestyle of dependence, dependence on him in everything. This really is where you find a lifestyle of peace. This is where rest becomes who you are and what you do, not just a day that you have at the end of the week, but a lifestyle of Sabbath. Depends on living dependent on God. But this all starts with trusting him and taking risks, trusting him at his word, hearing from him and doing what he asks you to do. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So this is a pretty cool piece of scripture. And it's a, it's a piece of scripture that gives us opportunity. Opportunity to be seen by the Lord and strongly supported by the Lord. So do you want strong support from the Lord in your work, your family, your startup, your ideas, your education, or you could say your Metron? The qualifier is that your heart is completely his. Then the eyes of the Lord will figuratively find you and you will attract the favor and support of the Lord. You know, we all need this in our lives. What else could compare? I want to share a story that you can put yourself into, see yourself in this testimony that I want to share with you. You know, there's a every reason that you could take this kind of risk and the steps of dependency on God that you're going to hear in this testimony from my own life. It could be in any context. It could be in a traditional mission context. It could be in ministry in a church, any job, vocation, calling, any sphere of influence that God's given you. You know, if your heart is completely his, he's going to see you and he's going to strongly support you. But he's seeking out people who will put themselves into the place of dependence on him so that he can strongly support them. He wants you to let him prove himself out through obedience to him. And I want to give you a story here that I have not actually written in any books yet. Uh, a number of people have heard me talk about it in the past, but it was a life-shaping experience that started with taking a really big risk, trusting in the Lord and seeing him work impossible circumstances into lived successful realities God's given you your Metron. He's given me my Metron. And he gave you a measure of responsibility. He wants to strongly support you in it, though, 
so that you can manage it. He doesn't ask you to do something and then not work with you, not co-labor, not help you. So let's talk about this story of risk, this story of redemption, and this story where a lot of things go really wrong. Okay, for those of you who have read my book, Outreach Matters, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say this story that I want to share occurs just after the incident at Oxford. If you want to know about that, it's another story. Uh, Go read the book, Pretty Wild Times. So I found myself back on a plane heading to Israel out of Europe. And this all came about because uh, if you listen back in my podcasts, uh, you'll hear a whole series where I, I do an audio reading of the book that I wrote my first book called Faith in $5, an incredible story of traveling for four months, six countries, $5, a wild, miraculous adventure. Part of that, though, was an unknown element at the end where I talk about how we ended up in Israel for no apparent reason, didn't really make sense at the time for what we were trying to do, and we went to a conference there, and it was a just a God-ordained moment. But the reason we found that we actually ended up in Israel was that God was putting on our heart and revealing something that he wanted to lay hold of and he wanted to work with us on, which was helping the young people, the Russian and Ukrainian immigrants that were Jewish immigrants that were moving back from the Eastern Bloc areas of the world back to Israel at that time. There's quite an influx of these immigrants back to Israel. And it was a really broken time, a really difficult time. And we really realized that God had a heart for these people and really wanted to help them, wanted to develop young people, uh, wanted to invest in them. So we came away from that end of the trip realizing, okay, we need to come back and do this. We'd met a few key people, a few contacts. And lo and behold, not long after that book wrapped up, I found myself back on the way to Israel with some interesting stopovers in Europe. But what I found was that this was essentially a Kairos assignment. It was another high-risk adventure, a time to action on something that I didn't understand, I didn't feel equipped to do, didn't know how to do it, but I knew God was saying to do it and to step into it and try. And it's not uncommon in this early phase of my life that God had me doing these kind of outreaches and opportunities. This time, at least, I did have a return flight and had a little money to live on. And all I had beyond that was an invite to stay with some friends that were part of our ministry circle uh, where the project was supposed to start. And that was going to be in East Jerusalem in the old city. So this assignment was all about the question of what do you do when everything seems to be going wrong? You know, we all find ourselves in seasons where we've done all we know to do in the way we believe was right, and we felt confident that we were following the will of the Lord in a certain direction, and yet everything still seems to go wrong. So here's a little backstory on this assignment. You know, after my early work in Ukraine and Russia and many of the other former Soviet republics after the breakup of the Soviet Union, I had a real calling and a compulsion and interest in reaching and developing populations in these countries. You know, at this time, our ministry had lost access to visas that would allow us to continue our work in Russia and in Ukraine. So we pivoted to work with many of these immigrants that were streaming into Israel from the former Soviet Union. These displaced folks were in dire conditions socially and economically. 
when they got to Israel. And we were planning to partner with local churches to provide humanitarian aid and minister to this group of people to run youth programs, particularly a discipleship camp for those that were coming that were actually Christian. A lot of them were Christians when they came from Russia and Ukraine. So I was sent to develop the opportunity, stand it up and stand up the whole project from scratch and see if we could pull it off. The Israel-based part, though, of the trip was just one component of an overall summer of ministry in the region, in the Mediterranean. Our larger team was scheduled to arrive in Athens after I'd spent an initial six or seven weeks setting up the project in Israel and then continue on together to our primary project in Albania. After operating our project in Albania for another six weeks, we would then circle back to Israel um, by boat, basically, uh, to complete the project that I'd set up with this newly arriving immigrant population. That was the idea. That was the goal, the dream, the plan. But things don't always go to plan, as you'll hear in this story. You know, our team, we specialized in organizing large groups of young people from diverse church backgrounds to join us for about a 10 to 14 day intensive youth camp. It's kind of that type of experience. And as far as we knew and had planned for, you know, the Albanian programs were all set in place in advance with partners there. And I was working on standing up this side of it in Israel for the second half of the summer. But we thought Albania would be straightforward and it proved actually to be anything but straightforward. So let's start with what happened in Israel. So this whole trip started rough. On my way in, uh, I didn't know anything about how sensitive things were in Israel, how tight security was. I was a novice at this. I'd only been there one time briefly. And I somehow aroused suspicions uh, among the security uh, detachment that was actually with the plane that was supposed to pick us up and take us to Israel, you know, this commercial airline uh, is actually the national carrier for Israel, uh, El Al. And uh, they have pretty strict security and obvious concerns around that. For some reason, though, I guess maybe because of all the travel I'd done and uh, no, no real clear reason for going to Israel other than to be a tourist, uh, they intercepted me in the line checking in for the flight uh, in uh, Amsterdam and I was getting ready to get on the plane and suddenly I've got these two guys in suits and radios walk up next to me and a lady comes up with a clipboard and she asked me if are you Jonathan Nowlin I'm like yes she's like come with us and I was like oh boy this trip is off to a great start and so we end up going uh, back into essentially an interrogation room behind security and they proceed to tear me to pieces in multiple languages and I have no idea what's going on. I'm sitting there and they're yelling at me in Hebrew, they're yelling at me in Arabic, uh, they're playing good cop, bad cop and I'm just totally oblivious as to what's going on, what everybody's so upset about and this whole thing just goes on for hours and finally they give up on, you know, try, I mean, they're trying to call every phone number I have. Uh, this is the old days, so we don't have like a lot of cell phone access or anything like that. But they're determined that I am some kind of criminal or threat to the state of Israel. And they're going to figure it out. And I, and I have no idea what's going on. So they finally give up on this whole 
uh, quest to prove me to be a bad guy. And the lady tells me, um, okay, we're done. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, we thought you were working for the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, smuggling cash, basically smuggling cash for terrorists. And I was like, wow, where did that come from? And who knows how they arrive at these conclusions. But that was my welcome to this trip was hours of this interrogation and all my stuff torn apart. They finally get me on the plane and they're still sort of convinced I'm up to no good. And I was a little bit stressed out, you could imagine, by this point. So I get on the flight. I'm heading down to Israel and uh, I get off the plane and I'm still really rattled. It's not that long of a flight. I'm really rattled. I get off the plane and I'm trying to get my luggage. I have no idea really where I'm going. I got to get to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. I mean, all this stuff. And I grab my bags and I'm heading out of the airport. And on that end, these two uh, plain clothes, like undercover security guys step out in front of me and flash badges. And I'm like, oh no, are you serious again? And I'm thinking they're all bent out of shape about this previous assumption they had in Amsterdam. And the guy says, I think they had observed that I was so stressed out and so rattled uh, that I looked nervous like I was smuggling. So the guy says, just give me the drugs. We know you're carrying drugs. And it didn't even dawn on me. It was so out of left field. I thought, what are you talking about? And I just blank stared at this security guy. I was like, I don't have any drugs. He's like, we know you have drugs. Just hand them over. And I was like, knock yourself out, threw my backpack to him and just stood there. I was like, and when I when I was totally unflustered uh, by this accusation, he took the backpack I threw it to me, threw it back to me, and he's like, get out of here, tourist. <laughs> so I just walked out. And at that point, I was like, wow, this is going to be an interesting trip. I wonder what I've gotten myself into. And from that moment on, things were just difficult and crazy on this trip. And I got down to Jerusalem and was living some with some friends there in the old city. And it was a tough environment, extreme spiritual environment. There was so much tension. Uh, those of you that have been in that part of the world, you know how tense it is. You can cut the atmosphere with a knife sometimes. It's like you feel this electric energy of, uh, of like a spiritual tension, like things could break at any moment in that area. And they do often, actually. There's unfortunately a huge effect of disunity among christians and believers uh, there's obvious disunity within society in general but there's a darkness and a depression that weighs on everyone you know for me to function there i found i couldn't even hardly get out of bed the first morning i was so oppressed by the atmosphere just spiritually and so i just dove into my quiet time i was like i need to connect with god that's the only hope i have here and i started to have to have four hour long quiet times in the morning, like getting up at five in the morning, going till almost nine with just spending time with Jesus. Or I couldn't function. I couldn't get out the door. I couldn't get my thoughts together or my attitude together. I couldn't hear God correctly. It was debilitating. So you really had to fight for it. You had to fight for every inch of ground you were going to take and your assignment. And this was difficult. This was a really difficult thing. And everything seemed to go wrong. You know, even from the beginning when I got there, the folks that were hosting me uh, somehow had miscommunicated in their invitation. And initially it said they weren't even expecting uh, me to pay to be there. 
to stay with them and it ended up being the opposite that I was actually expected to pay uh, for all kinds of accommodations and things. And I was not prepared financially for that. When I got there again, knew at this whole thing, wasn't great at communicating. I was just trying to obey God. And we worked that out, but I was basically broke at that point and living on charity for food and bargaining in the Arab market just to survive. Fortunately, we had good relations with the neighbors and the local Arab community there, and they uh, sold us food and supplies at like, you know, the local price, which was oftentimes 20% of the going rate for everyone else. That made our money stretch for a little ways. But there, there was, uh, you know, difficulty even getting enough food to eat day to day as I'm trying to do this stuff. I walked everywhere in Jerusalem. All these meetings, I would walk miles to different churches, to different locations for coffee meetings. It was intense. So every day, I was working to coordinate, set up a camp program for these immigrant youth. Uh, it was dire, dire times. You would see people just on the streets basically begging for money from, from Russia and Ukraine that had moved there. It was heartbreaking. Uh, we would see like professional musicians out playing, you know, concert level capacity and skill. And they could not earn any money. Once they got there, they couldn't find jobs. And they're literally playing for spare change when they could have been professional violinists uh, back in their countries where they'd come from. And I was young and inexperienced, and I started to run into hostile rivalries in this location, disunity that was like nothing I'd ever seen between churches and believers, to the point where like if the, some believers thought you had even talked to a, another believer, then they wouldn't talk to you because they didn't like this person. And you could hardly navigate spiritually or socially the situation going on there. And it made it almost impossible to set anything up practically or functionally and i was finally able to figure out how to work with one key church and we set up a plan to partner and work on this program together uh, set up a venue and we had this grand plan in place that we would be able to come back to at the end of the summer allegedly and hopefully and pull off this program together but our average day my average day there was just filled with challenges and dangers literal dangers i mean on a daily basis there would be uh, shootings and violence, different attacks. And this wasn't even during the worst of the times they've experienced over there in those parts of the world. But one day in particular was really bad. And we almost started a war in the Middle East accidentally. When I say we, me and this friend of mine, a guy that I'd connected with who was uh, staying there with this mission, uh, this effort as well. And uh, his name was Christian. And we uh, were just seeking God together, supporting each other as best we could. We became friends. You know, it was a really difficult environment for both of us. And so we would go out and shop for this house that we were staying at with different folks. And we'd bargain. And he spoke a little bit of Arabic. And one day we're out pretty early in the morning doing our normal morning shopping, talking with uh, the vendors, different things like that. We're in the old city in these really cramped, walled streets uh, in the east side, the east part of the, of the old city in the Arab quarter. And all of a sudden, we just hear this deafening roar of people. Just unbelievable, like a football stadium roar of people. And we look up and coming from every street in every direction is absolute mob 
of uh, radical uh, religious Jews that were storming through that part of the city and they're coming right at us and there's nowhere to go. You're in these small corridors and small streets and there's thousands of people running and bearing down at us, uh, yelling and waving flags and uh, charging through these streets. Everybody's shutting their doors, shutting their shops and we don't have anywhere to escape to. We're trying to hide and somehow Christian got separated on the other side of the street. I was on the other side trying to stay out as this crowd raced by us and he's yelling at me through the crowd as they're going by. He's yelling, don't let them uh, move you along. Don't let it look like you're with this march, this riot, because our Arab community will think we're rioting or marching with the Jews and they'll turn on us. We'll be in danger. And so he's like, make it look like you're resisting. And so what do you do at that point? We're trying to resist. We're hanging on to the windows, the door frames, anything we can to not get carried away in this crowd. And finally, there's nothing we can do. We get swept up in this crowd like it's a, a river, a raging river. And somehow I end up in the front of this one section of the crowd and we're coming up on a um, Islamic bookstore, a Arab bookstore that's there. And the, the mob is targeting that store and the guy couldn't get it closed in time and so the the riot the mob force goes right towards it but the israeli military had set up a perimeter around that store to defend it and it set up like a barricade and unfortunately i was right in the front of this mob and being carried along and the the mob ran me right into the barricade of all these soldiers and i just remember like before I was stunned, I remember this Israeli soldier just yelling, get back and swinging the butt of his machine gun and just slamming it into my stomach and knock my wind out so bad. I didn't even know what had hit me or what had happened. And eventually, though, the mob like pushed over this barricade, over this uh, blockade that the military had set up and we get swept through security and out into the big plaza that's in front of the Temple Mount uh, where the uh, Dome of the Rock is and um, very contentious and contended area in that part of the world, huge plaza. And suddenly myself and Christian, we find each other again in the mob and we're being pushed into this ocean of people out there with this deafening roaring and rioting going on. And we're right in the middle of it. There's nowhere we can get away. We can't hardly move. Oh, it's so packed and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And we're trying to figure out how do we escape? How do we get out of here? Uh, this is not going to end well. And we figured out from what was being yelled that the crowd was looking to storm the Temple Mount and forcibly retake it uh, as a Jewish, uh, I guess, religious community. And that was not going to end well. At this point, the Arabs on the uh, on the Temple Mount were beginning to just rain down projectiles off of that, rocks and debris, and all this stuff was coming into the crowd, and it was beginning to be a conflict. And out of nowhere, one of the leaders of this riot, who apparently wasn't confident enough in his own leadership to lead the charge on the Temple Mount, is looking around in the crowd and he's looking to pick a candidate somebody who's going to lead them to attack the temple mount and christian is about eight feet away from me in the crowd we can't get to each other because it's so packed 
And they grab him. He looks a lot more uh, Jewish than I do. <laughs> they grab him, probably thinking he was a Jew. And they put him on this like, they elevate him up in the air. And the whole crowd uh, goes silent. And the other leader in the crowd yells, you will lead us. And Christian realizes what's going on, that he's just been nominated to lead the charge on the Temple Mount and probably start a war in the Middle East. This is not what we anticipated when we came out to get breakfast in the morning. This is not how our day was supposed to go. And he just gets really quiet and confident, stands up on top of these people in the crowd. Everybody's listening, and he just yells out at the top of his voice, I am not your man. And the crowd just erupts in this explosion and they just throw him off the crowd into the crowd and it goes crazy again. And they can't find anybody who will lead the charge on the temple on the temple mount up there. And so they Christians like we got to get out of here. We're going to get killed because now they're mad at us for not leading the charge on the temple mount. So we see the CNN camera crew coming through the crowd and they're letting them through. There's like six or seven of them with cameras and mics and everything. And so we jump into this line with the CNN camera crew and uh, and pretend we're with CNN and make our way back through the crowd, back through to the edge of the plaza, outside, through the gate. And then we're like, we get out of this crazy riot. And we're like, all right, this is going to be the main event. We need to get good seats. So we ran up got on the wall in the Jewish quarter, got a good view. And we're like, well, there's nowhere you can really go. So let's at least watch what's going to happen. And we got up there, got our breakfast and we were watching this main event. We're like, man, Jesus, we need help. What do we even do? And we just prayed a little bit, sat up there waiting for a divine intervention to bring peace. And by God's grace, that crowd started to settle down. They gave up the ambition to storm the Temple Mount. The military and the police arrived, cleared everybody out. And we just went back to eating our breakfast, sitting up there, realizing this is not going to be an easy gig. This is going to be really difficult. And it's our average day working in this part of the world. So things didn't get any better towards the end of my time in Israel in that part of the trip. As far as I knew, the operation was set up. It was going to happen. But then I had to make my way eventually all the way to Greece and then to Albania on, at that point, very little money that I had left. And so I found a a free place to stay with some friends that I'd met actually in another country related to the mission I was in at at that time. And they lived in the West Bank, actually, in a Jewish settlement, which was a whole different experience than living in the Arab quarter of East Jerusalem. So I was getting exposed to all the uh, various elements of society, you could say, in that community. And I ended up staying with them up there and realizing these were Christians, but these were really politically extreme Christians, even for those days in Israel. So things didn't work out with this living arrangement in the West Bank. And I ended up having to leave and basically having to pay every last dollar that I had to the people that I was staying with, even though at the time they'd invited me to stay for free and it wasn't expected that I'd have to pay for housing. But it came to that and I ended up having to pay and I had almost no money left. All I had was enough money to ride the bus into Tel Aviv. And by the time I got there, I had no money, like no money to eat. I was literally on the street in Tel Aviv. I had no options. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have a way to even call anybody. 
But what I did have was a message. Somebody had routed a message to me in an envelope. It was like old school mail that had come to Israel and found me. And it was a message from a church that I barely knew in Colorado that I'd met just on one trip. And in the message that I'd received, it was just a notice that there was a fax waiting for me to pick up at a Western Union office in Tel Aviv. So once I was on the street, I had nowhere else to go. So I walked to this office and picked up my message. To my amazement, this church that I barely knew had decided to take me on financially as a missionary and support me. I had not even asked them for that. And somehow they decided to do that. And they had actually wired my support for the entire first half of the year, like retroactively, to this same Western Union office. And suddenly... I had all the money I needed to complete this trip from being on the street with no money to having all the money I needed to get to Athens and to do the entire trip in Albania and get back all of it in a miracle moment. You know, that money wouldn't have mattered to this Cairo season I was in if I hadn't taken the risk to get there, even if that risk ended up being full of difficulties and failures and setbacks to the point where I ended up on the street with nothing in Tel Aviv. But because I'd been willing to take the risk and be dependent on God, even if it looked like a total failure in the eyes of the world, that money was able to meet me at the right moment, that Kairos moment, and set up the rest of the summer for some incredible miracles that only God could do. And it began with the miracle of that financial provision. So all through this difficult time, struggling with doubt, struggling with a lot of failures, struggling with my inadequacies, my inexperience, being really young, trying to pull off a very difficult operation, but remaining dependent and remaining confident in the Lord, God worked a miracle. After I received this money, I had to get back on the bus, get up to Haifa, get the boat, get to Athens to meet the team. But that's the next part of the story. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast, presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.